Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. All right. Pull up your pod. Pull up your radio. Settle in. This is going to be one of my favorite editions of this show. Today, we're joined by journalist Jesse Washington. He was the co-author of the late John Thompson's autobiography. It's called I Came as a Shadow, an autobiography. And I'm just going to lay it all out here from the beginning, <laughs> Jesse. First of all, really good to have you with us. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate being here, man. Thank you. All right, so I'm a Hoya. I went to Georgetown. I was a sports editor at the Georgetown Voice. I interacted a lot as a student journalist with John Thompson. My brother, my wife, his wife all went to Georgetown. And actually, I got this book, you'll be happy to know, Jesse, as a Christmas present from my sister-in-law, Lauren, and my brother, Wynn. So uh, tip of the hat to them. And my sister-in-law was funny because she said to me, she said, I, I have to confess as I'm giving you this book, I've read about half of it, like before I wrapped it. Uh, and she was so <laughs> enthralled. She subsequently bought her own uh, copy and finished it. It's a phenomenal book. And it's a book about much more than basketball and candidly much more than John Thompson's life. This is a book about sports. This is a book about college. This is a, bu- a book really about race in America in many ways. Let's go back to the beginning how did you get interested in this, and how did you get involved? Well, I've always been interested in Coach Thompson because I grew up watching the early Big East. I grew up rooting for Georgetown. You know, I'm a black man who loves basketball, so, of course, I love the Georgetown University and Coach Thompson. 
And then he was looking for someone to write his life story. I believe his children are the ones who convinced him that it was finally time to do it. And I was one of a pool of writers that he was considering, and I came away with the gig. You wrote something in the introduction that caught my eye. Is that when you sat down the first time and, you know, usually, you know, how you doing, coach, and this and that, and you said it was none of that. It was like, okay, start the recorder, let's go. <laughs> let's hit it. And he just told story after story after story. Can you, can you relate more about that? Sure. So once I got the job, we made an appointment to sit down for our first work session. And I believe he was really testing me to keep, see if I could keep up. And there were no pleasantries. There wasn't like, oh, how you doing, Jesse? So how your kids doing? The weather's nice outside today, huh? <laughs> um, you know, we, I turned on the recorder and he just started going. And he, he was putting out a lot of things that were important to him about the book so I could get a sense of how his mind worked. He liked to jump around from topic to topic and free associate things, but he wasn't really interested in talking about, okay, when I beat St. John's in the garden, I used this strategy and I doubled down, you know, uh, he never used the word pin down screen or double, you know, like anything like that in our conversation. It was bigger themes, education, justice, you know, helping young people, um, black rights. These were the things that were important to him. And he wanted to talk about those things. So the first time we sat down and he just started going, I kept up. I did have some questions, which he appreciated. And as time went on, the first thing that we would always say when we sat down, he would say, okay, Jesse, what do you have for me today? And then I would try to get, you know, give him some, a prompt. And then we would get into it, man. It was an incredible experience. And this almost sounds like he is the interviewer and you're the interviewee when you were writing this book. Well, sometimes it was, but more often as it went on, once, once I understood the themes that he wanted to talk about, we had to figure out how to shape that into a narrative, into a beginning-to-end story. And so he relied on me to come up with particular sort of mileposts to talk about, okay, in 1987, this happened. Tell me about this. And he would connect it to the bigger themes that were important to him. That was one of the words that he used a lot when we were talking about. He would say, well, this connects back to, and then he would keep going. You know, when we're talking about how he kept the media out of practice and how he was protecting his players, he'd say, well, this connects back to my sixth grade teacher, Samantha Wallace-Jackson, and how she protected my feelings when I was struggling in school. And so that was sort of what he expected me to bring to the interviews, questions, topics, a timeline, and then uh, we would go from there. So, Jesse... You know, from the beginning, this is obviously a personal story, but it's also a socioeconomic story, and it's a story of place. Help us understand how the socioeconomics and the economics of, of Coach Thompson's family and his upbringing really influenced how he looked at the world. Oh, man, that's the foundation of everything. You know, a lot of times in this country, we think that all this, uh, racism is a thing of the past. What are y'all complaining about? That was a long time ago. What does that have to do with anything that's going on now? And we overlooked that so many people who are still with us grew up with legal segregation, like Coach Thompson did in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This man could practically see the White House from, his, from where he lived in Anacostia, and he grew up in Jim Crow. He was born in 1941, and in the 40s and 50s, Washington, D.C. was segregated. 
He would try to go places and wouldn't be allowed to sit at the counter to eat. In high school, he was not allowed to play in the best summer league tournaments because they were segregated. So his mother was a trained uh, college-educated teacher but could not get work in her profession, so she had to clean houses. And his father grew up in Maryland, which was a Jim Crow state, and he could not read or write because when he was a young man, uh, a young boy rather, he had to go to work in the fields instead of going to school. So he grew up in poverty in the projects, but he said, I never felt deprived of anything because my parents provided me with a sense of love and security and everything that I could want. But then the real key thing with Coach, and this is indicative of how he thought about things, he said, I knew what not to want also. I knew not to want a new pair of shoes until I had a hole in the ones I had at the time, and so on and so forth. And so he grew up in an era of segregation, of poverty, and of being told that he was less than in many ways. And one of the formative experiences of his book is when they went to church, in the Catholic Church down in Maryland, and the black people had to sit in the back. They had to take communion second. And this experience never left him, you know, so a number of things never left him. And this really formed the basis of his worldview. Not that he could not forgive, because he was happy to forgive, and he made many meaningful white relationships, but he said, Jesus told us to forgive, he never told us to forget. The name of the book, I Came as a Shadow, how did you come up with that name? Thank you for asking, because the name to me is one of the most wonderful and symbolic parts of the book. It was suggested by his daughter, Tiffany, who is a teacher herself. And Coach Thompson had an uncle by the name of Louis Grandison Alexander. And when he was growing up in D.C. in the 40s and 50s, the only black people he saw celebrated and praised and getting famous were athletes who could run or jump or knock people out. Boxing was big at the time. Mm -hmm. His uncle was a poet, and he was the first person that Coach Thompson, Little John, ever saw being praised and celebrated for using his mind. So that made a big impression on him. And when we started working on the book, all of a sudden one day Coach Thompson just up and recited a poem. And like he was moving so fast and I'm trying to keep up and then he just recited a poem like, huh, okay, you know, add that to the list of things that you would not expect Coach Thompson to be doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he was very, you know, he was, he was much different than the public perception. So he recited the poem and then maybe a couple days later he said it again and he mentioned his uncle and it's a beautiful poem about a shadow that comes and there's an air of fear with the shadow initially, but then the shadow ends up illuminating, uh, to, to quote the poet, to dazzle your night. And I was like, wow, Coach, you identify with that shadow, don't you? And he said, you're blank and right, I do. <laughs> and, 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 and so it's the, it's the title of a poem written by his uncle, and Coach Thompson identifies with the shadow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Wow, that's spectacular. Uh, one line in the book uh, here, Jesse, uh, I never had the luxury of just being a basketball coach. What do you mean by that? Wow. Um, coach Thompson would say, that's good reading right there, boy, <laughs> because you picked up on something that's very important to him. 
the things he had to deal with with a coach were more than your average white coach, you know, and his dear friend and mentor Dean Smith taught him early in his career that your success or failure, 70% of the things you do as a coach have nothing to do with basketball, but those are going to influence whether you win or lose. So for coach Thompson, he had to deal with racism. He had to be accused. uh, He had to deal with being falsely accused of being a racist. He had to be, deal with uh, resistance from within his institution to the concept of having a black coach. He had to deal with so many other issues, uh, you know, drug dealers uh, infamously dealing with his program, associating with his players. All of these issues that he had to deal with took away from his focus and attention on basketball. And so that's what he meant when he said, I never had the luxury as a black coach in America coming up as one of the first black coaches in college sports at a white university. He had to deal with so many other things that that really um, competed with his attention to basketball. However, what he said after that, which was equally as important, is, but I wouldn't have been satisfied any other way. I needed something meaningful to fight over and fuss about. So he was really made for that. You know, somebody had to break that barrier that he did and pave the way for other black coaches. And it had to be somebody who relished that challenge. He said the the fight gave me strength to keep going. So even though he never had the luxury of only being a basketball coach, he really craved that extra challenge to go the extra mile and really to help uplift black people. And Jesse, I, I want to build on that a little bit. And, and as an aside, one of the interesting things when I hear you talk is is anybody who spent any time around uh, Coach Thompson, one of the wor- one of those little words that he used to use that that were almost like anachronistic is fuss. He would use the word fuss a lot, which is just which I more associate with my like you know, late grandmother from Baton Rouge. You know, like there's just this. He had these <laughs> funny little uh, uh, verbal uh, anachronisms, but. You know, to your point about, you know, going beyond the floor, one of the things you talk about a lot in the book and Coach talks about a lot in the book is the relationship with his players, but specifically preparing them for life, which is not a given in many ways. And and he writes about, you guys write about this notion of, you know, making more money sitting down than standing up and, and the educational piece of this which was you know embedded in the in the controversy that he willingly or unwittingly uh generated over time help us understand that sort of positioning of his players for what came after school that's a great question and one of the most remarkable things about coach thompson so his players have told me that they would be in practice and he might yell at them for, for messing up a play, or he might stop practice and say, hey, ask a player, what happened to Iran today? <laughs> and then he would sit them down on the sidelines and they would talk about current events. Michael Jackson said that um, he sat them down on Martin Luther King Day and gave a two-hour lecture, at least two hours, about the differences between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. So he really cared about educating his players. And I think that a lot of coaches care in the abstract, but it's time to win. And when, and they naturally gravitate towards the things that are going to help them win games and have more success and make more money. Coach Thompson was willing to put that to the side. And he, he gave the greatest resource as he describes in the book, which is time to making sure that his players were educated, to talking to them about important things, 
to insisting that they go to class. He would not tolerate it if you didn't go to class. He would not tolerate it if you didn't do your work. And he put his money where his mouth was in terms of he would sit kids out of games if they were academically struggling when it would hurt his chances to win, you know, which is you rarely, if ever, would see any coaches doing that at the highest level of college sports right now. So I think those things really speak to his his uh, determination to educate these kids. And, you know, he says in the book, I really wanted to be a teacher. I had no intention of being a coach. I wanted to work with young people. His mom was a teacher. He grew up in boys club number two in D.C. with men who were counseling you, trying to help you in life more than win a game. And so he was deeply influenced by so many of these teachers and others that I'm, you know, that we don't have time to go into. And he wanted to do that. And he determined early on, oh, if I coach basketball, I can intermingle that with my counseling. And this way I can help kids to succeed. And so that was his mission in life. And he did it to the detriment of winning sometimes. I mean, he would have won back-to-back championships almost certainly had he not expelled Michael Graham from Georgetown. You know, the school tried to convince him to bring him back. He said the president of the university was like, no, bring him back. We just won a national championship. We're trying to win another one. You think Michael Graham couldn't have helped them beat Villanova in in 86? Of course he could have. So in 85, rather. So, you know, these are some of the ways that he really set himself apart. Coach Thompson is the only great coach who is known for things beyond basketball. I want to go back to a story you said about uh, Coach Thompson and he wouldn't buy another pair of shoes until he wore a hole in the old one. And I, I think of a story uh, about my parents. They grew up in the 20s and in the 30s. And it's just a simple thing about food. And I, and I bring this up today to the kids today, uh, my kids, and I'm sure many others. Uh, you have a meal one day, and then the next day it's like, oh, I don't want leftovers. I want it fresh. And then I lost my mind because my mom and dad had to make things go and stretch stuff. And and I think a lesson that kids can learn today through Coach Thompson is don't waste. There are a lot of people out there who who are looking for a meal, who are looking for a pair of shoes. And, and all this, you know, well, I, I want it all fresh and stuff. Uh, you you got to think first, man. It's like uh, – don't waste and, and think of what Coach Thompson would say. Man, that is so accurate. And uh, I'm in that same battle with my kids. Yeah, just because we have food here, there's a lot of people who don't. So it's really like disrespectful to to everyone who has less than us. If you're going to throw away food, no, we don't throw away food. I mean, Coach Thompson said he never knew you could have more than one slice of bologna on a sandwich <laughs> until he got to college. You know, it was, the concept was just foreign to him. Um, you know, his his book provides a window into a different era of life in America that is really not as far as we think. Mm. And there really are a lot of people still living under those conditions, even though it may not be by law, but by, you know, by practice and by custom. It is still that same situation that he grew up in. A lot of people are living under that right now. And Coach Thompson would be the first to say, until we can ensure equality for the least of us for those who have the least then you know what does this really mean that we have it and so that whole thing about not wasting about valuing what you have um about 
understanding the struggles that our forefathers went through and the people who who mopped floors and and cleaned toilets and didn't learn how to read in order for us to be where we're at right now in 2021, living comfortably with access to all these things. I mean, that's a really important lesson from his book. Jesse, if I can, I want to build on that real quick because it gets to something that really struck me in this book and and in part having gone to Georgetown and, and having, you know, been there for the Allen Iverson years and candidly the controversy that surrounded Allen Iverson's arrival at Georgetown and all the editorials and all the hand-wringing and things like that. I want you to talk about, if you can, Coach Thompson's view of providing an opportunity for kids who on paper and based on SAT scores or grades or whatever wouldn't have otherwise gone to specifically Georgetown because the way that you guys explain it in the book I think is incredibly illuminating in terms of opportunity and educational opportunity leading up to college which he himself experienced and he referenced one of his early teachers who essentially enabled him to go from being functionally illiterate to then going to college walk us through that yeah I'm so glad you asked and and like you know, fair warning, I'm going to get emotional here and I'm going to get a little angry because it's so infuriating how people today still look at as if an SAT score defines your worth as a person, as if there's not thousands and thousands of really intelligent young people in our schools who could live tremendously productive lives, but they're overlooked because we think they're stupid and the majority of these kids are black. And we think they're stupid because of a number and for which they've never been prepared. They don't have an equal education. You know, I mean, the biggest predictor of your success on the of your score on the SAT is your parents income. So do we really believe that rich people are smarter than poor people? No. So this gets to the the real root of what Coach Thompson was saying. Um, He said we don't have an equal system of secondary education in America. Poor people don't have access to the same quality of education. And so then the SAT is not an equal measure of, or even your high school grades really, are not an equal measure of your ability. So he was willing to look beyond that. He was willing to look at a kid and say, does this kid have intelligence? Can they succeed in a university uh, environment? And then he was willing to give them a chance. He also is very transparent about his motives. And Coach Thompson says, hey, I wasn't trying to look deeper into a kid who was slow and couldn't jump. <laughs> you know? right. Like I was trying to help kids who would help me win basketball games. But they still deserve help. And here's another thing. You know, I'm infuriated by people. Uh, I know people who hated Coach Thompson because of the kids that he brought to Georgetown. And on a deeper level, these people thought – those black kids don't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. My kids deserve to be there, not these quote-unquote thugs. Now, he, he, you know, the whole thugs thing about them being thugs when, when they weren't uh, committing any crimes is a whole nother level of racism. But we'll, we'll stick to the academic portion. You right. know? And, and so you know, another thing that Coach Thompson said, which was really powerful in his book, is do we think that that is the mission of a university like Georgetown only to educate people who already are well-educated. 
You know, and that's what happens in these schools. I mean, hey, I went to Yale University, okay? And so I'm familiar with how privilege rolls over onto privilege and is perpetuated generation to generation. People get locked out. Are we trying to open that up and give an opportunity to some other people who come from poor backgrounds, such as myself, who came from the project? You know, and so what Coach Thompson was doing was really providing the definition of equal opportunity in America. And if we really think that we all deserve an equal opportunity, regardless of our race or our socioeconomic background, then we would do well to look at the example that Coach Thompson set. And, hey, he made some mistakes. Sometimes you bring a kid in who isn't good enough. You know, That doesn't mean that they didn't deserve the opportunity. That just means that they lost it. There's plenty of rich white kids who flunked out of these schools too. So you know, um, I could go on. I'll calm down and stop there. But <laughs> I think that that is one of the most powerful messages of his yeah. book is how do we hand out opportunity in America? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Jess, um, what do you think he was most proud of? You know, he's got NBA, he's got Hall of Famers, he's got a national championship, but I think at his core, uh, I won't be surprised at your answer, but what was he most proud of, in your opinion? Mm, that he spoke up, uh, that, he, that he, he did things that would help advance the rights of disadvantaged people. Um, and uh, I think, and he wouldn't say this, because he was very modest and never wanted to talk about his own accomplishments. But I think that one of the things he was privately most proud of was that he showed that black people could succeed through intelligence. And that's what the big deal about him winning the championship was. Yeah, he won championships in the NBA, you know, physically. To do it at Georgetown by using his mind and by coaching meant more to him. You know, he said, I wanted to prove to black people that we could kick down the door that existed with us intellectual. And so um, I think that that would be one of the things he was most proud of, too. I mean, he lived such an extraordinary life. He had so many things. Um, so it's hard to just limit it. I mean, you look at some of his graduates and the things that they've accomplished in life, as he says in his book, I got guys who I love dearly and who did more than people who made it to the NBA. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people who you never heard of who weren't great players. Those are the things that really made him proud to see people making a difference in the world um, with their minds. But of course, he made the biggest difference out of all the people that came through under him at Georgetown. Jesse, you know, one of the interesting things that that he goes into in the book that you guys go into in the book is is something that I feel like we take for granted now, and, and that is the the big money and the endorsements and all of that that are now in sports, and, and specifically his relationship with Nike. I, I have to say I was not aware until I read the book of the trailblazing nature of that, his relationship with Phil Knight and, and the back and forth that, that they had his, you know, endorsement deal essentially with Nike. Talk about the importance of that, if you will. Yeah, I, I didn't know either until he told me. I mean, this man was on the board of directors of Nike. He got there when it was very 
rare for black people to get on corporate boards. It's still rare, you know, but that's another story, you know. Right. So his relationship with Nike began very early when Nike was not even hadn't even gone public. And he was hired as, you know, when they started going around hiring coaches to represent their brands. But Coach Thompson liked money. You know, he he said in the beginning of his book, hey, I always had some sort of little hustle job. Money was something I was never reluctant to get. And he was not embarrassed about saying, I want to be rich. That is a direct quote, you know. So um, but at the same time, he wanted to stand for something. He and Nike had and Phil Knight had something in common. They were rebels. They liked to go against the grain. They weren't afraid to do something unpopular if they thought it was right. And so that partnership, that collaboration really grew over the years. And, um, you know, the Nike chapter in the book is one of the most fascinating. He helped make Nike the company that it is today. And before Air Jordan, before the first Air Jordan came out, Georgetown's championship basketball team wore Nikes. And I can tell you as a teenager at that time, I would have rather had a pair of those shoes than, uh, uh, than you know, stocks, bonds, cash money, right. you know, I mean, whatever, you know, gold bars. I mean, those shoes were it. And it was the attitude, the swagger, you know, the aura of Georgetown's team and those Nike and those, those Nikes that they wore that carried over to the company and built the image of Nike that is today. So Coach Thompson says in his book, yeah, Air Jordan did, you know, probably more than anything. Um, and I really had to squeeze this part out of him. You know, he didn't really want to dwell on it that much. But they had such a huge impact on the development of Nike's image and Coach specifically. And when Coach was getting in trouble and people were challenging him, Nike stood behind him. Number one, because Phil Knight knew what kind of person he was. And number two, because he recognized it was good for business. You know, Georgetown was like representing the counterculture and black culture in a way that was very new in the 80s. Hip-hop was not embraced at all like it is today. Hip-hop was like Georgetown. It was outcast. It was like, oh, look at what them N-words over there are doing. <laughs> you know, so, so he had a huge role in that. And as time went on, he remained on the Nike board. At the mandatory retirement age, Phil Knight refused to accept his retirement and kept him on. Um, and he played uh, a, a very major role in the company, according to what Phil Knight says, according to what people like, um, you know, all of the other illustrious board members that they have over there, the leaders of, of the biggest and best companies in America, were his colleagues and relied on Coach Thompson for wisdom and understanding that went beyond sports. But he didn't toot his horn about that. You know, um, here's a, here's a, I'll finish this little section with a story about how low-key he was. Uh, we were setting up a meeting for the, you know, the following week, and I asked about Thursday, and Coach said, oh, I have to go out to Nike to, you know, to a board meeting, so I can't meet Thursday. And I was just sort of making conversations. I was like, oh, you know, how's that travel for you, Coach? You know, he was getting a little harder for him to move around. He was getting up there, and he just said, oh, they send the jet. <laughs> and then went on with the <laughs> conversation. <laughs> That's good. Dang, okay, Coach. Yeah. You know, what did the kids call that, a flex? Yeah, you know, that's a flex. That's <laughs> quick flex. Quick flex. I, I got to bring this up. I, I know we're, we're getting short on time here, but it jumped out when I read it. And he said there was a quote by Mahatma Gandhi that affected him deeply. And the quote was, freedom is not worth having if it does not include the freedom to make mistakes. So in other words, to be truly free, we must have the freedom 
not to be successful too. Can you expand more on that? Because that jumped out, boom, when I when I read that in the book. Absolutely. You know, Coach had this off-angle way of looking at things in the world, and he was that's how his mind works. He would look at things from several angles at once. So, you know, one person would say, oh, yeah, this is great. Black folks have the opportunity to be successful. Look at all these successful black people. He was like, no. And he would quote Gandhi. Real success is when we cannot succeed and still have opportunity, like so many white people get. You know, true freedom is the, is the opportunity to not be successful. And what he meant was, okay, if a black coach gets fired from this school over here, are they going to get another shot after that? You know, it's some of what we're looking at in the NFL right now with all the controversy about the lack of opportunity for black coaches. There's several black coaches, uh, you know, coordinators in the championship game, the then Super Bowl coming up now, who have, you know, maybe they got fired in another spot. And people are saying, oh, well, they got fired. So that's why they're not getting any opportunity. Hey, Bill Belichick got fired in Cleveland and he got another opportunity. Bill Belichick had the opportunity to succeed. He had the, he had the chance to not be successful. And then to, and still achieve success. So it's a it's a interesting and different perspective on what true equality is. We will truly be equal when we can fail and still be okay, because that's the American way. That's America is supposed to be the land of second chances. Coach Thompson understood. Hey, if I got to Georgetown and I didn't win, I had one chance to get it right. And if I didn't get it right, then the other black coach, the next black coach, isn't going to get hired. So he's trying to get past that point. I don't think we've got there yet. Tell me about the deflated basketball that sits in his office. I think our listeners would love to hear this. Oh, yeah. This is a famous metaphor that Coach Thompson had where he had a, a, a empty, you know, a ball with a dent in it. And it sat in his office for his whole career. And what that symbolized was, this is your future. The ball will not be bouncing for you for very much longer, or if you're really lucky, it'll bounce for another 10 or 20 years. And then you'll be 40 years old. What are you going to do? How are you going to make a mark on the world with your mind? What difference are you going to make in the world? Because look at this basketball. This is you. And everything's great now. You're getting all this attention, and you're going to get some money even, perhaps, with this basketball. But when it stops bouncing, what's going to happen? You know. And it's funny now, if you're around basketball like I am, it's almost a cliche. All the kids will say, yeah, well, you know, the ball's going to stop bouncing. The ball's going to stop bouncing sometime. That is something that Coach Thompson brought into the, the basketball culture and vernacular of make sure you educate yourself so that when you can't play basketball anymore, you will have something to contribute to the world. Um, one of the things that he revealed in the book, which I found strange, was that people wondered where he got it from, and it was a gag gift from a friend of his. So, uh, you know, when he left his job to go coach at Georgetown, one of the people who, who worked for him said, ha ha coach, you know, here's a, here's a, a flat ball for you, you know, happy trail. Um, and so that's where he got that famous metaphor, which stood for the importance of education. So Jesse, as we wrap up here, first of all, I could just talk to you all day about this, as you can tell, uh, very invested in, in this book and this story. I, I have to ask you about his relationship with Georgetown. I want to ask you about his relationship with Georgetown. And and I've been debating with myself like whether I want you to reveal something that is at the end of the book because as someone who went to Georgetown, 
it's incredibly powerful to understand that his relationship was not just complicated during his tenure, but his family connection to the eastern part of Maryland and the Jesuits connection to that. I'm going very deep here, but it it makes you look at him and it makes you look at the the book and his story in an entirely different way. If you can distill down the complicated relationship with Georgetown, presidents who backed him, presidents who didn't at times, they fired his son. I mean, this was I know this this is thrown around a lot. I mean, there's there are some Shakespearean elements to to this relationship with with this university. Absolutely. And um Let's not give away the ending, but okay, I think good. there's so much there anyway. And so what it comes down to first is that Georgetown was deeply involved in the institution of slavery in America. You know, Georgetown is one of the first universities in the country. And from the very beginning, the Jesuits had slaves and used slaves to establish Georgetown. There would be no Georgetown without slavery. And in 1832, the university was about to go under due to mounting debt. And they sold 232 black people in order to survive, and they did. And so Coach Thompson reflects deeply upon this. And then the the other parallel track is that Georgetown in 1972 hired John Thompson because they recognized they needed more black people at the university. They wanted a black coach, and they went out and found one. There were riots over the assassinations of black leaders. They looked around in Washington and said, hey, we're a white university, a lily white university in an all black city. We're not living up to our responsibility as a university, as Christians. We're falling short. We need to do better. And they went and hired John Thompson. Now, they had no idea who they were really getting. (laughs) And then over the years, the, the relationship was difficult. And in the book, Coach Thompson says, and you could sort of sum it up with this statement of his. I will always love Georgetown, but I'm not going to let them off the hook either. And Coach had a tremendous ability to see all sides of the situation. So there were problems with the relationship, and there were great parts of the relationship. Several of the university presidents backed him to the fullest and allowed him to be him and never told him to sit down and shut up. And he probably would have gotten fired by other people for some of the ways he spoke out. But then there were other very racist elements within the school that he had to contend with, and that hurt him deeply. And he said, I didn't feel at home at Georgetown, truly at home, until years after I won the national championship. So you've got this long relationship with Georgetown and black people that goes back centuries, with uh, Coach Thompson and Georgetown that goes back to the 70s. And it really culminates at the end of the book with a remarkable revelation about Coach and his family history that um, I was quite surprised about and provides a really emotional ending to the book. It absolutely does, and I'm glad we didn't spoil it because for anyone who reads it, and I cannot recommend this book more highly, whether you care about basketball, whether you care about Georgetown, if you care about humanity, I mean, this is a story. It's a story for our time, and I'm so grateful to you, uh, Jesse, for writing it and for joining us because uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I've been looking forward to it, and, uh, and, and I'm really grateful to you for, for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, and I, I do want to say thank you to Coach Thompson because it would have been easy for him to fade off into the sunset without speaking his mind and without telling his story. And parts of it were painful for him to tell and to relive. 
but I'm so glad that he chose to reveal this part of his experiences in his life because I think there's a lot that we can all learn from it way beyond basketball. So thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you, Jesse. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Jason Kelly. Follow me at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.